Part three of Omnilingual by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Trishy Matson. Lunch at the huts was a hasty meal with a gabble of full-mouthed and excited talking. Hubert Penrose and his chief subordinates snatched their food in a huddled consultation at one end of the table. In the afternoon, work was suspended on everything else, and the fifty-odd men and women of the expedition concentrated their efforts on the university. By the middle of the afternoon, the seventh floor had been completely examined, photographed, and sketched, and the murals in the square central hall covered with protective tarpaulins, and Laurent Jacquel and his air-sealing crew had moved in and were at work. It had been decided to seal the central hall at the entrances. It took the French-Canadian engineer most of the afternoon to find all the ventilation ducts and plug them. An elevator shaft on the north side was found reaching clear to the 25th floor. This would give access to the top of the building. Another shaft from the center would take care of the floors below. Nobody seemed willing to trust the ancient elevators themselves. It was the next evening before a couple of cars and the necessary machinery could be fabricated in the machine shops aboard the ship and sent down by landing rocket. By that time, the air sealing was finished, the nuclear electric energy converters were in place, and the oxygen generators set up. Martha was in the lower basement, an hour or so before lunch the day after, when a couple of Space Force officers came out of the elevator bringing extra lights with them. She was still using oxygen equipment. It was a moment before she realized that the newcomers had no masks, and that one of them was smoking. She took off her own helmet speaker, throat mic, and mask, and unslung her tank pack, breathing cautiously. The air was chilly and musty acrid with the odor of antiquity, the first Martian odor she had smelled. But when she lit a cigarette, the lighter flamed clear and steady, and the tobacco caught and burned evenly. The archaeologists, many of the other civilian scientists, a few of the Space Force officers, and the two news correspondents, Sid Chamberlain and Gloria Standish, moved in that evening, setting up cots in vacant rooms. They installed electric stoves and a refrigerator in the old library reading room, and put in a bar and lunch counter. For a few days, the place was full of noise and activity. Then, gradually, the Space Force people and all but a few of the civilians returned to their own work. There was still the business of air-sealing the more habitable of the buildings already explored and fitting them up in readiness for the arrival, in a year and a half, of the 500 members of the main expedition. There was work to be done enlarging the landing field for the ship's rocket craft and building new chemical fuel tanks. There was the work of getting the city's ancient reservoirs cleared of silt before the next spring thaw brought more water down the underground aqueducts everybody called canals in mistranslation of Schiaparelli's Italian word, though this was proving considerably easier than anticipated. The ancient canal builders must have anticipated a time when their descendants would no longer be capable of maintenance work and had prepared against it. 
By the day after, the university had been made completely habitable. The actual work there was being done by Salim, Tony Latimer, and herself, with half a dozen Space Force officers, mostly girls, and four or five civilians, helping. They worked up from the bottom, dividing the floor surfaces into numbered squares, measuring and listing and sketching and photographing. They packaged samples of organic matter and sent them up to the ship for carbon-14 dating and analysis. They opened cans and jars and bottles and found that everything fluid in them had evaporated through the porosity of glass and metal and plastic, if there were no other way. Wherever they looked, they found evidence of activity suddenly suspended and never resumed. A vise with a bar of metal in it, half cut through, and the hacksaw beside it. Pots and pans with hardened remnants of food in them. A leathery cut of meat on a table, with the knife ready at hand. Toilet articles on washstands, unmade beds, the bedding ready to crumble at a touch, but still retaining the impress of the sleeper's body. Papers and writing materials on desks, as though the writer had gotten up, meaning to return and finish in a 50,000-year-ago moment. It worried her, irrationally. She began to feel that the Martians had never left this place, that they were still around her, watching disapprovingly every time she picked up something they had laid down. They haunted her dreams now, instead of their enigmatic writing. At first, everybody who had moved into the university had taken a separate room, happy to escape the crowding and lack of privacy of the huts. After a few nights, she was glad when Gloria Standish moved in with her and accepted the newswoman's excuse that she felt lonely without someone to talk to before falling asleep. Sachiko Koromitsu joined them the next evening, and before going to bed, the girl officer cleaned and oiled her pistol, remarking that she was afraid some rust may have gotten into it. The others felt it too. Salim von Olmhorst developed the habit of turning quickly and looking behind him, as though trying to surprise somebody or something that was stalking him. Tony Latimer, having a drink at the bar that had been improvised from the librarian's desk in the reading room, set down his glass and swore. You know what this place is? It's an archaeological Marie Celeste, he declared. It was occupied right up to the end. We've all seen the shifts these people use to keep a civilization going here. But what was the end? What happened to them? Where did they go? You didn't expect them to be waiting out front with a red carpet and a big banner. Welcome Terrans, did you, Tony? Gloria Standish asked. No, of course not. They've all been dead for 50,000 years. But if they were the last of the Martians, why haven't we found their bones, at least? Who buried them after they were dead? He looked at the glass, a bubble-thin goblet, found, with hundreds of others like it, in a closet above as though debating with himself whether to have another drink. Then he voted in the affirmative and reached for the cocktail pitcher. And every door on the old ground level is either barred or barricaded from the inside. How did they get out, and why did they leave? The next day at lunch, Sachiko Koromitsu had the answer to the second question. Four or five electrical engineers had come down by rocket from the ship, 
and she had been spending the morning with them in oxymasks at the top of the building. Tony, I thought you said those generators were in good shape, she began, catching sight of Latimer. They aren't. They're in the most unholy mess I ever saw. What happened up there was that the supports of the wind rotor gave way, and weight snapped the main shaft and smashed everything under it. Well, after 50,000 years, you can expect something like that, Latimer retorted. When an archaeologist says something's in good shape, he doesn't necessarily mean it'll start as soon as you shove a switch in. You didn't notice that it happened when the power was on, did you? One of the engineers asked, nettled at Latimer's tone. Well, it was. Everything's burned out or shorted or fused together. I saw one bus bar eight inches across, melted clean in two. It's a pity we didn't find things in good shape, even archaeologically speaking. I saw a lot of interesting things, things in advance of what we're using now. But it'll take a couple of years to get everything sorted out and figure what it looked like originally. Did it look as though anybody'd made any attempt to fix it? Martha asked. Sachiko shook her head. They must have taken one look at it and given up. I don't believe there would have been any possible way to repair anything. Well, that explains why they left. They needed electricity for lighting and heating, and all their industrial equipment was electrical. They had a good life here with power. Without it, this place wouldn't have been habitable. Then why did they barricade everything from the inside, and how did they get out? Latimer wanted to know. To keep other people from breaking in and looting. Last man out probably barred the last door and slid down a rope from upstairs, Von Ohmhorst suggested. This Houdini trick doesn't worry me too much. We'll find out eventually. Yes, about the time Martha starts reading Martian, Latimer scoffed. That may be just when we'll find out, Von Ohmhorst replied seriously. It wouldn't surprise me if they left something in writing when they evacuated this place. Are you really beginning to treat this pipe dream of hers as a serious possibility, Selene? Latimer demanded. I know. It would be a wonderful thing, but wonderful things don't happen just because they're wonderful. Only because they're possible, and this isn't. Let me quote that distinguished Hittitologist, Johannes Friedrich. Nothing can be translated out of nothing. Or that later, but not less distinguished Hittitologist, Selim von Olmhorst. Where are you going to get your bilingual? Friedrich lived to see the Hittite language deciphered and read, von Olmhorst reminded him. Yes, when they found Hittite Assyrian bilinguals. Latimer measured a spoonful of coffee powder into his cup and added hot water. Martha, you ought to know better than anybody how little chance you have. You've been working for years in the Indus Valley. How many words of Harappa have you or anybody else ever been able to read? We never found a university with a half-million-volume library at Harappa or Mohenjo-Daro. And the first day we entered this building... We established meanings for several words, Selim von Olmhorst added. And you've never found another meaningful word since, Latimer added. And you're only sure of general meaning, not specific meaning of word elements. And you have a dozen different interpretations for each word. We made a start, von Olmhorst maintained. We have Grotefin's word for king, 
but I'm going to be able to read some of those books over there if it takes me the rest of my life here. It probably will, anyhow. You mean you've changed your mind about going home on the Cyrano? Martha asked. You'll stay on here? The old man nodded. I can't leave this. There's too much to discover. The old dog will have to learn a lot of new tricks, but this is where my work will be from now on. Latimer was shocked. You're nuts, he cried. You mean you're going to throw away everything you've accomplished in Hittitology and start all over again here on Mars? Martha, if you've talked him into this crazy decision, you're a criminal. Nobody talked me into anything, von Omhorst said roughly. And as for throwing away what I've accomplished in Hittitology, I don't know what the devil you're talking about. Everything I know about the Hittite Empire is published and available to anybody. Hittitology's like Egyptology. It stopped being research and archaeology and become scholarship and history. And I'm not a scholar or a historian. I'm a pick-and-shovel field archaeologist, a highly skilled and specialized grave robber and junk picker. And there's more pick-and-shovel work on this planet that I could do in a hundred lifetimes. This is something new. I was a fool to think I could turn my back on it and go back to scribbling footnotes about Hittite kings. You could have anything you wanted in Hittitology. There are a dozen universities that'd sooner have you than a winning football team. But no! You have to be the top man in martiology, too! You can't leave that for anybody else! Latimer shoved his chair back and got to his feet, leaving the table with an oath that was almost a sob of exasperation. Maybe his feelings were too much for him. Maybe he realized, as Martha did, what he had betrayed. She sat, avoiding the eyes of the others, looking at the ceiling, as embarrassed as though Latimer had flung something dirty on the table in front of them. Tony Latimer had desperately wanted Salim to go home on the Cyrano. Martiology was a new field. If Salim entered it, he would bring with him the reputation he had already built in Hittitology, automatically stepping into the leading role that Latimer had coveted for himself. Ivan Fitzgerald's words echoed back to her. When you want to be a big shot, you can't bear the possibility of anybody else being a bigger big shot. His derision of her own efforts became comprehensible, too. It wasn't that he was convinced that she would never learn to read the Martian language. He had been afraid that she would. End of part three.